This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series with our own Alex Cortez bringing us an unusual story today. It's about baseball and about a player that you likely haven't heard of named Kurt Flood. He grew up in Oakland in the Bay Area, we should say, really, with Frank Robinson. Robinson, the right-hand batter. Long drive, the left And Ricky Henderson. Joe DiMaggio. And all kinds of great baseball players came out of the, the rich baseball culture of the San Francisco Oakland Bay Area. You're listening to the voice of political columnist George Will, whom you may not know is perhaps even more passionate about his baseball writing. Kirk Flood grew up in the 40s and 50s. And in the 50s, he became a minor league player, largely in the South, which is where most minor league teams were, because most major league teams were in the North. And he experienced the desegregated South. This was the South before the public accommodation section of the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed. He would travel with his teammates on the team bus. They would go in the front door of the restaurant to get food, he would be handed food out the back door. He would relieve himself on the side of the road because he couldn't use the restrooms. And one day after a game, the players threw their uniforms in a pile and the equipment manager took a broomstick, picked up floods with it and sent it to a black dry cleaner for them to clean it. Kurt also saw white and colored water fountains for the first time and assumed that the colored one perhaps had ginger ale in it. All of this he had never experienced before growing up in the West. He, he didn't, but you learn awfully fast. The Cardinals that he joined happened to have three other particularly fierce African-Americans who'd also experienced this and nursed an understandable grudge about it. One was Bill White, first baseman, who went on to be president of the National League. And two others went on to be Hall of Famers, Bob Gibson, the pitcher from Omaha, Nebraska, and Lou Brock from I can't remember where. But anyway, they'd all experienced this in the South, and they all played with a particular intensity, unquestionably in part because of the fires that had been stoked within them by the injustice they experienced. And Kurt would add that the injustice wasn't limited to the South. When the then World Series hero tried to rent a particular house in San Francisco, the owner threatened to hold it hostage at gunpoint before letting a black man move in. And rather than find another house, Kurt sued him. I think that the notoriety that undoubtedly going to be involved here will make people aware, if nothing else, that that prejudice is is not only confined to the southern part of our United States, and if they if they move their mustache and look under their nose, that they find it right here at home too. Kurt Flood was for many many seasons a premier outfielder. Most of the years with the St. Louis Cardinals. Batting second and playing center field, number 21, Kurt Flood. He was awarded a gold glove that's given by Major League Baseball to the 
person considered the premier defensive player at that particular position. Now to be a gold glove center fielder is not chopped liver. That is a big deal in baseball. I did play in three World Series and I won the Golden Glove Award seven times and that is not easy when you play the same position as Willie Mays. <laughs> I hope they remember some of the some of the great things, the great times that that uh that we had. Well many haven't or that he was a three-time all-star, batted over 300 in six seasons and once went a whole season without a single error. Instead, many remember this. Late in his career with the Cardinals, what turned out to be late in his career with the Cardinals, they decided to trade him to Philadelphia. And he said, uh, no, actually, I don't want to go to Philadelphia. Kurt had been in the city of St. Louis with the Cardinals for 10 seasons and liked it there. Philadelphia was an awful team and known for its racism. And I'm going to challenge the reserve clause, which had been integral to baseball since time immemorial. All it said was that once you signed with a team, you were that team's property until they decided to trade you or release you and there was no third option. Here's one of Kurt Flood's lawyers, Arthur Goldberg. He's owned by the team that first employed him or the team to which that team sells him. Kurt Flood said there's something wrong with this because it denies to a category of Americans, of whom I am a part, the basic, what should be the basic American right to negotiate the terms of employment with the employer of your choice. Should one person be able to own another person for his entire life? Well, Abraham Lincoln solved that problem for us, didn't he? Kurt Flood says the present system makes baseball players slaves. For a man who makes $90,000 a year, which isn't exactly slave wages, what's your retort to that? Uh, a well-paid slave is nonetheless a slave. He said, I won't go to Philadelphia interrupted a lucrative career at the peak of his prowess. Foregoing, Philadelphia's offer to pay him $100,000, $680,000 in today's dollars. Money that the high-spending player desperately needed to pay his ex-wife child support. He was such a good center fielder, which means he played the biggest part of the outfield, which means as you grow old, your capacity declines, so he was taking a risk with the perishable asset of baseball talent. You seem to think that there are things more important than money, obviously. I pride myself for several things, of which one is integrity. Me as a human being, I must stand up for that principle alone. Anyway, uh, he challenged the reserve clause. In court. And when we come back, you'll hear the rest of this story, Kurt Flood's story, the Rule of Law series here on Our American Story. The 
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Kurt Flood and his story of challenging baseball's reserve clause, which made a player his owner's property for as long as they wanted. I knew that, it, that the reserve clause in my contract was illegal, and I thought that I was the one to make the difference in, in our contracts. Legally, a contract must have a beginning and an end. But the reserve clause perpetuated this year after year, even though you only had a one-year contract. That clause in your contract perpetuated it until you died. As a matter of fact, if they resurrected Babe Ruth, the Yankees would still own him. Uh, That's how ironclad that clause in the contract was. I spoke with Marvin Miller, who was the executive director of the Players Association at the time. And he said, Kurt, I want you to go back to California and I want you to think about what you're getting ready, what you're getting yourself in for, because this is going to be a, a fight to the finish if, if, in fact, that's what you want. And I guess there's so, something about suing the kind of people that own baseball teams that it's kind of frightening. These are really powerful men. Not only do they own baseball teams, but they, they own everything else in this hemisphere. His owner with the Cardinals was Gussie Bush, the Bush of Bush beer. Here's what Marvin Miller told him. You will never have another job in baseball again, ever. You understand that, don't you, Kurt? It almost didn't matter what I said. I realized that this is really a man of principle here. After Marvin spent most of the time trying to convince him what a mistake he was making personally, concluded it by saying, you're the answer to a maiden's prayer. You're the guy I've been looking for. This is Kurt Flood, baseball's Bolshevik. He was public enemy number one. Baseball owners say the move could spell disaster. There's no question about it. It's the worst thing that has ever happened to baseball. I also thought they're going to crush him. On May 19, 1970, Kurt Flood testified in the U.S. District Court of New York. His former Cardinals teammates happened to be playing in New York that day, but not a single one of them appeared at the courthouse to support him. In fact, not a single current MLB player made an appearance, including fellow black players like Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Frank Robinson, all were afraid of their owners. Only former players showed up, and among which was Kurt's hero, whose jersey number he adopted when he was in the minor leagues, and who had taken a stand of his own. 1944 in Fort Hood, Texas. This was 11 years before Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus in Montgomery, thereby kicking off the Montgomery bus boycott and igniting the career of Martin Luther King. Uh, In 1944, Lieutenant Jackie Robinson refused to go to the back of an army bus in segregated Texas, was court-martialed but vindicated. So baseball has been very important to the establishment of rights, not just racial rights, but rights. Jackie approached Kurt at the plaintiff's table and whispered in his ear, keep your head up, you're doing the right thing. And Kurt started crying. 
The presiding judge, though, disagreed and ruled against him, but undeterred, Flood appealed it to the Second Circuit, lost again, and appealed it a final time to the U.S. Supreme Court. Continuing the case came at a great personal cost. It complicated his lawyer's recommendation that he file bankruptcy to deal with his mounting personal debt. Filing bankruptcy would have given the bankruptcy trustee the power to resolve all litigation, which would have included the baseball case. Kurt's choice not to do that says to me, I'm not going to settle this case. Not to make all my financial problems go away. I gave my word. I'm going to see it through. And he did. The Supreme Court agreed today to hear arguments that professional baseball is a business which must be subject to the antitrust laws. The case not only challenged the reserve clause's potential illegality of being a never-ending contract similar to slavery in Flood's view, but it also challenged baseball's exemption from antitrust laws that would otherwise prevent a monopoly like Major League Baseball from mandating that every single team have these clauses and for all to blackball Kurt from exploring the market through free agency. Here's Kurt's wife, Judy Pace. Kurt would say, we have been subsidizing the owners. We just can't even go out and find out what am I really valued at? What do I need to be paid if I'm getting seven consecutive gold gloves? What is my value? We thought getting $20,000 a year was a fair share. Because of baseball's monopoly status, that's all that players like Flood could imagine. A status they were challenging that was granted to baseball by that very court. In a 1922 ruling written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. In a suit arising from a conflict between the major leagues and the federal league, which had grown up to challenge the major leagues, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, well, baseball is not a business in interstate commerce. He declared that the business is giving exhibitions of baseball, which are purely state affairs, and that baseball is something above the reproach of business. It is a sport. Which is preposterous. Uh, the great sports writer Jim Murray of the Los Angeles Times once said, if baseball is not a business, then Microsoft or General Motors is a sport. And if baseball, a business where two teams from two different states play each other and where fans from multiple states buy tickets isn't interstate commerce, how could what a farmer named Roscoe Filburn did possibly be? Roscoe Filburn was the Ohio farmer who raised grain on his farm for use on his farm. It would never enter interstate commerce. He'd use it to feed his chickens and and other animals. The Supreme Court said, no, doesn't matter. You have exceeded your quota under the federal agricultural quota system. A depression era law that thought the government would know how to run farms. Because just by growing the wheat and using it on your farm, it means you didn't go into the interstate market to buy your 
feed for your animals and therefore you have affected interstate commerce. Therefore, the federal government can pretty much regulate anything it wants by claiming a significant effect on interstate commerce. But we stray from baseball into constitutional law. Yes, we do, George. Perhaps unexpectedly so, but also quite positively. Our courts may not always get things right, as we saw with Filburn's case, but at least we have courts. We have a rule of law where laws that we collectively pass rule the day. Or at least we attempt to have them rule the day. It can be a sticky process, and the courts can be wrong, and the passage of time confirms that they're often wrong. But we know that we can work it out in a publicly agreed upon process. You know, it's sometimes said that Americans don't do political philosophy because we've never created the equivalent of Locke's Second Treatise on Government or Hobbes' Leviathan. Actually, Americans do political philosophy all the time. They just do it in court cases. That Kurt Flood or Roscoe Filburn are able to sue the powers that be is a remarkable reality, especially in the context of thousands of years of human history where they couldn't. And even today, there are no such things called courts or laws in countries like China, North Korea, Cuba, and Russia, at least not real ones. In such places, the rule of the day is not the rule of law, but the rule of the ruler. Anyway, he lost. In part because, in large part because, Oliver Wendell Holmes had a singularly bad day and a good bit of his career perished with his legal case. In 1976, there was a challenge mounted to the reserve clause. It was submitted to an arbiter. The arbiter says, yeah, the reserve clause is uh, illegal. And baseball changed instantly. Free agency was now a possibility by players. They could shop around for a team the same way the rest of us do. We're finding our work and everything else in our lives. And boy, as George Will write, it would have an impact. That story, after the break, Kurt Flood's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week in print and in audio form. Just go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories every week. And now let's return to the impact caused by the courageous stand of this one player against the big league. As soon as they struck down the reserve clause, the Cassandras came out of the woodwork and there were loud lamentations and rending of garments across the land as the baseball owners, who never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity, proved themselves wrong again. They said, this will mean 
that all the good players will go to the rich teams and it will be the end of competitive balance. They were 180 degrees wrong. Competitive balance immediately began to improve. The ensuing 1978-87 to 87 decade of baseball saw 10 different teams win the World Series, which had never happened before. And before 1990, not a single team had gone from being the worst in the league one season and being the first in the league the next season. But the Twins and the Braves did it in 91 and the Phillies in 93. So much for competitive balance. Kurt Flood came back briefly after his aborted trade, but his career was essentially over. It's rather nice that he played in St. Louis, not far from the courthouse dome. You can see it today right over the outfield fence from the new Bush Stadium, where the original Dred Scott case was settled. Dred Scott was the slave who had lived for a while in a free state and said that by virtue of having lived in a free state, he should be declared free. The Supreme Court under Justice Taney in 1857 tried to resolve America's racial dilemma and again made an awful hash of it, brought on the Civil War and catalyzed the career of Abraham Lincoln by saying, no African-American has or ever shall have any rights that a white person is obligated to respect. Which is why when I wrote about Kurt Flood years ago, I referred to him as Dred Scott and Spikes. Because they both lost, but both sparked a movement that ultimately won, even if they never benefited from it. The outcome which was that we are a market society. We believe in the freedom for capitalist acts between consenting adults, to use a phrase coined by the, the late, great Robert Nozick. So the national pastime was suddenly, and to its great discomfort, but its ultimate prosperity was made congruent with the national premise, which is that People should be free to contract with one another in cooperative ventures, even if it's called Major League Baseball. The biggest deal in baseball history finally went through today as the San Francisco Giants signed free agent outfielder Barry Bonds to a six-year, $43.75 million deal. Now, Justin Verlander has signed a seven-year contract for $180 million. Leighton Kershaw has agreed to a new seven-year, $215 million contract. What Kurt Flood did was give players leverage. If you have no leverage, you have no power to compel owners to share a larger portion of the value that the players create. No one that I know of has ever bought a ticket to a ballpark to see an owner. Uh, they go to see the, the players. Now, I'm, I don't want to sound too Marxist here about the labor theory of value, but even allowing for the fact that the entrepreneurship and the scouting and all the rest and the marketing that goes into the management side of baseball does create value, still, most of the value is created by the players. Therefore, what the Dred Scott-Kurt Flood decision did was give the Major League Baseball players leverage just at a time, no one could have seen this, when something else was going to happen that was going to make an enormous difference to salaries, and that is 
the explosive growth of local broadcast revenues. The era of baseball prosperity was just around the corner with cable television and super stations such as TBS, Ted Turner broadcasting his Braves, the WGN broadcasting the Cubs, which WGN for a while owned through the Tribune Company. So through serendipity, the explosive growth of money pouring into baseball because of new television audiences, baseball became invaluable programming. It coincided with the fact that the players suddenly had the leverage to get a bigger piece of this growing pie. A piece that Kurt Flood would never benefit from. Missed the big paydays. Can't blame guys like Duke Snyder and Willie Mays and these others who, had they come along a generation later, would have been rich beyond the dreams of avarice. And Kurt's theoretical losses affected him in a very non-theoretical way. Uh, he left the country for a while. I think he was embittered, and I don't blame him. Uh, his, he had an embittering experience, and he moved, I believe, to Spain uh, before coming back and dying prematurely from cancer. Uh, I actually sp spoke at his, at his funeral among the speakers of me and Jesse Jackson, contrasting rhetorical styles, to say no more. Uh, but uh, he could, Kurt Flood could be prickly and uh, good. Uh, Kurt Flood once said, I'm proud that God made my skin black. I wish he'd made it thicker. Uh, baseball in America are better off because he was a little bit thin-skinned. If only America knew it. Kurt Flood is one among the all-too-forgotten heroes that made America. It's an amazing thing, but understandable, most people turn to sports and baseball as a pastime. They want the time to pass as a respite from the daily stuff and strife and technicalities of modern life. So they say, get, stop that nonsense. Don't talk about revenue sharing. Don't talk about luxury taxes. Don't talk about free agency. Don't talk about this, that, the other thing. Play ball. I can understand that. But it's too bad because there's a richness to the, if you will, the sociology of baseball that to the fan who's informed of it finds that his enjoyment of the game has deepened. I then proceeded to make the great mistake of voicing the proposition that baseball is like a microcosm of life. Well, I resist that kind of writing about baseball. The baseball reminds me of my father, of summer days of the Federal Reserve Board or whatever. It's just, baseball's baseball. It's a tough, demanding craft played by grown men. And by the way, it's also dangerous. If you play 162 of these games in 183 days, you'll get the picture. This is not boys of summer. These are men at work, and they are tough guys at the very top of a very steep athletic pyramid and trying to stay there. So in that sense, it, it, to me, it's the ultimate meritocracy. After 162 games, you are your record. There's no dodging it. It's all there in black and white. And uh, this, that's why it requires 
a particular toughness of the sort that uh, Kurt Flood had in abundance. And great job, Alex. Superb job by George Will. They're not the boys of summer. They're the men of work. And it is work, and it's hard work. And Kurt Flood, well, he got athletes rewarded for their work, at least in baseball. Kurt Flood's story, a remarkable story, a story of courage and one man, one man alone, changing things. This is Our American Stories. <laughs>